Welcome to Watershed's June podcast. My name is Mark Cosgrove and I'm a cinema curator here at Watershed. This month is going to be in two parts. The second part, I'll be talking to Catherine Allen, who's a producer, curator in the Pervasive Media Studio here at Watershed. And she put together a programme of VR that people, audiences will be able to watch later in the month. And we'll be discussing the potential future of virtual reality. But for the first part, I'm delighted to be joined by Tara Judah, who is a film writer, blogger, vlogger. And we're going to talk about melodrama. I sort of thought when I was thinking it was in two parts that VR and melodrama were not related, but maybe in the future, (laughs) maybe in the future they will be related. Um, But we're here to talk about melodrama, and this has come about um, because we're opening uh, Nicole Garcia's new film, uh, From the Land to the Moon, uh, later this month. And I saw this film in Cannes last year, where I also saw Pedro Almodovar's Julieta, which is a wonderful emotional flashback into a woman's uh, life, love and grief. And it seemed to me at that point, um, having seen those two films together, which is what happens at festivals, you see films together and you begin to go, oh, is something happening here? And it felt to me that the, the melodrama was coming back um, it seemed that the two films were connected by using the melodrama. And of course you think, well, what does the melodrama mean? Um, so I put together a season of, of films about that. But let's talk, Tara, about um, melodrama. I mean, what, 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 what significance is the melodrama genre? Uh, it seemed to have been sort of, um, sort of diminished slightly uh, when it was talked about women's pictures, weepies. It was kind of pigeonholed into a kind of uh, niche um, is it where? What, where is it at? Yeah, I think that it's um, it's really fascinating the trajectory of melodrama. So it's you know initially been an extremely easily dismissible car- uh, kind of category. Um, film studies and film criticism was never really interested in it in the kind of early days. They thought it created these unrealistic, um, pathos-filled kind of romance and domestic situations, um, characters that just were completely full of cliche. Uh, and I think because of that, it just got such a, a, a widespread dismissal. Um, and it was really only a couple of critics in the early days that were interested in it. And um, wonderfully and annoyingly, they were the Cahiers de Cinema critics, Francois Truffaut and Jean-Luc Godard, uh, who- They were always there. <laughs> time and time again, were right about things that yeah, people yeah. would re- revisit later. So there's this, you know, this very kind of dismissive attitude that they're just weepies, they're tear jerkers, they're chick flicks, they're, there's nothing kind of intellectual nothing of substance or substance to, them. to yeah. them. That's that's what a lot of people would say and would think. Um, and there's some great writing around this. Um, you can kind of, if you're interested, film studies for free. Um, Catherine Grant's done some great work work on it and there's lots of stuff on Senses of Cinema and Kevin B. Lee has done really interesting writing around Mm. Douglas Sirk as well. So there's loads to kind of look at later. Um, And what's really interesting is it wasn't until kind of the 1970s that this critical eye came back to it. And so, I mean, if we think about this in the context of the kind of evolution of film theory and film criticism as well is that ideas and things were being much more um, deconstructed and pulled apart during this time. And so people like Laura Mulvey um, were revisiting melodrama um, 
you know, and uh, people like Jeffrey Nell Smith. And what they did was that they kind of looked at how melodrama and the contradictions within the melodrama and the high tension actually kind of breaks down narrative cohesion and how it, it says something about women's stories and how it can be subversive. Um, and Douglas Sirk is the great example of this. He's the, you know, the one that everybody kind of looks to. And I think that's also partially because, you know, he's kind of, tapping into the politics of the time and the kind of high neuroses in the Eisenhower America. Um, Thomas L. Sass has written a lot about that. So, you know, it took a while for people to kind of see that these stories were more than just um, ridiculous drama. And I think the kind of the idea of melodrama as well is because it is it is heightened. Mm. Um, melodrama is the, the combination of literally music and drama. So mm. it is about um, actually kind of searing emotions. Mm. That is what it hopes to do. Mm. So, the, you know, I think to criticize it for doing that is incorrect because that's its intention. Yeah. Um, that's exactly what it sets out to be. And also to think that maybe within that kind of searing heightened tension, there are actually more complicated themes um, and ideas to grapple with. And also I think, um, you know, just traditionally, you know, the mainstream's just always been very dismissive of women's stories, stories mm. like that come to, to be about protagonists who are female. And it's it's important that we see, you know, women's stories as well as men's stories. And, you know, they don't always have to be overwhelmingly positive. I think it's important to say that as well. Um, there's also always this kind of critical view that, well, if the, you know, if the woman is a housewife, that it's not um, a story of a woman of agency. And I mean, that's completely untrue. The 1950s, you know, this was women's stories and they needed to be yeah. told. Well, this is what um, struck me about um, In the Land of the Moon and Julieta was that you had firmly, squarely at the centre of the film two female characters. I mean, more so in Julieta, um, I guess, because, I mean, in Al and you'd expect that from Almodovar because women are so central to his his films. But still, it was a, it's a women's story as um, the Nicole Garcia film is. Um, and that's what made me think, um, and it is about emotions. I mean, uh, you know, the opening of In the Land, the, the first 20 minutes or so, you know, the, the, the woman played by uh, Marianne Cotillard is, um, she's causing trouble within her family and within her community because of her desires, because of her, um, you know, ambitions, but ma mainly because of her desires and her emotions. And so you have this woman, um, and it's the set of d sexual desire that's causing all this disruptive, um, and and that seemed to me to connect with Douglas Sirk and you know the the, the, the classic melodramas of the nineteen fifties, where um, yes these films were um, often centred in the domestic setting and in the home, um, and pigeonholed as you said as as just kind of women's pictures. But actually, what you find when you unpick it is really you know, strong female characters, transgressive female characters. I mean, if we think about um, all that heaven allows the Jane Wyman character who's just recently widowed and uh, falls, and she's in this very uh, middle-class uh, suburban neighborhood with all their codes of conduct and behaviors. And she falls for the, um, the gardener, Rock Hudson, who embodies another kind of lifestyle. Um, and of course her children rebel again. Everybody rebels against her. And, I and love I love this movie so much. I absolutely adore All That Heaven Allows. I adore all Douglas Sirk movies, really. I'm maybe bar one or two, but the, really the, the kind of essence of his melodrama, I think, is fantastic. And this film is so moving because here we have this woman who is widowed but doesn't want to spend the rest of her life in grief. And I think this is such an important theme because there is 
one of the things that melodrama gets criticized for is that it's, you know, very painful grief that all the women suffer and it's this kind of running theme of unfulfilled desires and misery. But what's so important about that particular film is it shows how hard it is for a woman to have a story or a life that is not centered around grief. Um, and the reason these films do resonate with female audiences, I'm not saying they don't resonate with male audiences as well, but particularly I think with female audiences is because the story is constantly about pushing women into grief and to making sure they stay there. And this film is one that says, I don't want to be grieving anymore. Mm. I, I, I'm not. I'm not just frivolously throwing my, you know, my dead husband away, but actually I'm a person too. And maybe there's something for me after his life that isn't just grieving about him. Yeah. And everybody is so against her. It's yeah. fascinating the kind of machinations of the well, social structure. And because the, the children and it want her to be, her children want her to behave in a particular way. Um, and so they have an idea of what a mother um, should be. And of course, Cirque just completely um, undermines that. And so film. does Almodovar in Julieta. The, yeah. I mean, he completely undermines this idea of what a, you know, a mother should be. And I think he's very fascinated with the role of mothers. I mean, you know, throughout his work, yeah. it kind of comes up time and time yeah. again. What, does, what, what is the role of the mother and how is she also an individual? Um, what does motherhood take of her that mm. she kind of can't uh, keep to herself? And this idea as well that perhaps the grief is so in, ingrained um, in the kind of social structure and the contemporary psyche that it becomes written into the DNA mm -hmm. and it's almost like grief and guilt and responsibility mm -hmm. for for all of the pain of, of, of social um, breakdown and kind of you know heteronormativity and nuclear family uh, discourse all of that breakdown is kind of written into the DNA of the women and they must and it's like they're constantly trying to break out of it and it's almost as if or, or the they're constantly unable. trying to hold it together yeah. um, and I was just thinking as you were saying there it perfectly described Joan Bennett's character in the reckless moment um, where she's again living in this kind of in quotes idyllic um, family life and I think the the father-in-law or her father's there as well as the children and the husband and all that and of course her daughter gets involved in uh, um, a murder uh, and, and and she's being blackmailed by James via James Mason but of course Joan Bennett's tr this working mother who's you know basically holding it all together and then who falls in love with, uh, <laughs> with the, the blackmailer um, and you feel so emotionally engaged with her trying to hold this together trying to hold this kind of relationship together as well and it's such a strong brilliant strong character yeah and a compromise always put in a compromising position mm. that you know she kind of has no choice but to engage in the structure. And I think that the way in which, you know, these filmmakers, I think, you know, Max Ophuls, Pedro Almodovar, Douglas Sirk, um, Todd Haynes, they all have um, a very particular way of kind of situating the the structure around the character. So that the character is the thing that drives the narrative forward, but actually the character is kind of pushing the narrative forward. And I think it's really interesting in terms of classical Hollywood narrative structure. They're pushing it forward while trying to kind of break away from mm. the paradigm of the structure itself mm. because the actual social structure is like the Hollywood narrative structure. It's this causal thing mm. that you can't get out of. And so in order to kind of push forward, they have to bring it with them. It's sort of like you can't break free of something without also bearing its weight. And, mm. and that's really where the heightened drama is. That's mm. where the kind of tension lies, which is 
you know, why these films are so much more than just emotional weepies. Although I'm reticent to say just, because I still think the emotional there, impact there is, of a film is, is really important. Value. <laughs> yeah. There is value in that, of course. But it is the way in which women's experience is dismissed. I think those labels, those critical labels, were ways in which women, um, women's uh, feelings, emotions, responses were, were dismissed or pigeonholed in a, in a certain way. And I guess then um, devalued. I mean, it strikes me that um, the, these melodramas that we've talked about offer progressive representations of women um, and are and are also critical of the context in which they're set and you know you mentioned about Eisenhower's sort of 50s America I mean it's difficult to know but do you know how they were received at the time and and I mean they were critically reread um, and in, as you said Goddard Truffaut kind of picked up on these sort of critiques of American society within it but I mean do, do you think the American audience were were sitting there watching all that heaven allows going, you know, go girl, um, you know, change society and, you know, fight against the, 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 well, the, I mean, the without, expectations. Without having done the reception studies, I yeah. think it is an interesting question though, because what it kind of taps into is the notion that, um, you know, you you inherently, even if you don't, even if you can't articulate critically, you inherently know when you see a film what it's tapping into. Even if I think there's always yeah. some kind of recognition, even if you're unable to immediately. Sometimes the kind of distance of history um, gives us a perspective to articulate the things that are, are in the film. But the fact that these films still, you know, did move audiences. If a yeah. film has the power to move you emotionally, yeah, yeah. it clearly is operating, you know, in the same in that way. Maybe you yeah. just don't have the tools with which to say what it's doing. But I think, you know, people did come out of these films crying. I mean, they kind of, they, I mean, they also really definitely market it that way, kind of, yeah. you know, have the Kleenex at the ready sort of thing. But the, the, I was just thinking about that famous image in the scene in, in All That Heaven Allows where the, the kids get her a present to keep her company, the, the mother, and it's the television. And then you see the reflection of her in the television and you just think, how what an absolutely <laughs> ter terrible thing. And you can imagine the recognition from women who are in that sort of domestic space. And so it does, as you say, I mean, if it's going to work, it's going to, it's, it's, it's going to work. We've mentioned All That Heaven Allows and Reckless Moment, two films that were screening as part of the brunches. Uh, we're also going to be screening um, Almodovar's Julieta. But the, the fourth film is, you mentioned Todd Haynes, and it's his um, Serkian film, Far From Heaven. I mean, which does seem like a kind of um, hugely influenced by All That Heaven Allows. But then All That Heaven Allows influenced Fassbender as well when he made um, um, Fear Eats the Soul. Um, does a remake, not a remake, but an homage like Far like Far from Heaven, does that does that still work as something? Absolutely. This is one of the most beautiful films I think that has ever been made. It is absolutely stunning and the opportunity to see it on a big screen should never be passed up. I mean, this is stunning cinematography, beautiful colours, really rich um, references. And I mean, Todd Haynes, you know, if, for people who've seen Carol perhaps would also know that his stylistic choices are very important. Um, and that was what also was important to Cirque. I mean, Cirque always sort of said that working within the Universal Studio system, what was great was that they never kind of really got involved with his cuts or the way that he, mm. you know, put things together. Um, and he, he spoke a lot through the colour and the mise-en-scene of the film. And there's a lot of writing about how really it's all in the mise-en-scene. And I think this is true of um, Todd Haynes' homage. But also that the homages, I mean, obviously the most 
clear reference is all that heaven allows, but actually it's a, a blend as well of themes that come up in Imitation of Life and other Douglas Sirk movies um, and other melodramas of the era. And the center of this film is Julianne Moore, who I think is one of the greatest living actresses that there is. I think she's an incredible um, performer. And so much is said just with the framing um, and just in the richness of the autumnal color palette, in the dresses, in the way that the, the actors hold themselves. And it cuts across race, class, gender, social structures, um, you know, everything. The, the critique is so strong and so vivid, but the way that you receive it is not through a kind of like, you know, um, clunky expression exposition or narrative device it's all there through the very sensory imagery and there's something incredibly tactile about this film it's not obviously a technicolor process but it recalls mm. the color and the depth of the kind of photochemical film processes of the Cirque era mm. I think it's amazing um, mm. and definitely could not be dismissed as some you know kind of insignificant work I mean it's Brilliant. so resonant and important today yeah I think that um, point about the heightened um, cinematography, the mise-en-scene, you know, um, because the, the, the melodrama really does use the language of cinema in a really uh, interesting, sumptuous, um, elegant, all those words that are about actually, you know, they're using the language of film and the cinematic to um, engage the audience. And again, that's where they, um, um, you know, they can be quite radical in what they do. And again, going back to your point about Kai's de Cinema, it's something that they absolutely picked up on was this, you know, what they were doing with the sets, with the camera, with um, placing objects in the frame and stuff. And so they become very rewarding as viewing experiences. And this is why they would, in a way, this is why they would dismiss. What's fascinating about that is because it's it's the mise-en-scene that speaks more than this sort of like overt narrative is that actually there's much more subtlety and nuance. Yeah. And actually that this um, language speaks directly to emotions um, that again it's music and drama you know it's this mm. idea of the drama of the image and the heightened music the kind of searing uh, impact of the film that is dismissed as just women's business or weepies or tearjerkers but that emotional impact is actually the intelligence of the film form um, so if anything it should kind of be elevated and not reduced yeah. and dismissed. So a great opportunity then in June to uh, reacquaint yourself if you've not seen them um, with uh, melodramas. There's the four that we mentioned, All That Heaven Allows, Reckless Moment, Far From Heaven and Julieta on in Sunday Brunches and also opening in June is Nicole Garcia's um, From the Land of the Moon um, and do bring handkerchiefs. Thank you very much Tara. Thank you. I'm joined now by Catherine Allen who is curating programme of VR work for us here at Watershed. Um, VR, virtual reality, is something that's clearly um, impacting in all our lives now. It's beginning to um, get out into a wider, I guess, domestic audience. But its, its relationship with cinema has been going for a good few years now. Um, I've just noticed, I've just come back from Cannes, and there's a huge uh, stands um, demonstrating VR work, and in fact, the Mexican director Alejandro Enarutu's piece Carne y Arena was um, in competition in Cannes. Um, and so we're really seeing um, virtual reality begin to engage audiences much more, this new, te new technology. Um, and Catherine, you've put together a programme of um, VR, just, because um, you you've worked in VR yourself, could you just tell yeah. us a bit about your 
engagement with virtual reality and what, what's been involved in that? Yeah, well, I started getting interested in VR before I even knew it existed. My degree was theatre, um, right. theatre and performance at Warwick University. And I had this obsession of making a theatre without actors. Um, partly because I thought there was loads of cool possibilities of things that you could do and effects that you could create, but also because I was interested in how scalable and repeatable it could be um, and how you could have the type of impacts that you get with cinema but with theatre. But I'd never even heard of virtual reality. Right. Like, I'd only thought it was just something in sci-fi. I didn't, I didn't know it was something that was in existence in this world. Um, and then fast forward a good few years um, when I was working for an app production company, and I thought I came up with the idea for VR when I got a panning shot on my phone um, of a sort of uh, lake vista, mm. moved my head along and had my jumper over my head. Right. <laughs> so I was moving my head at the same rate, the same speed. And I was thinking, this is like, I've created like a sort of yeah. virtual reality. It's like yeah, a portal. Yeah. And my colleagues thought it was hilarious because they knew that Google Cardboard which uh -huh. is Google's sort of cheap VR solution that had mm. already launched. I just hadn't heard about it. So for my birthday a few weeks later, they bought me a Google card. <laughs> so that was my way into VR. Yeah. And, and VR is, is what? It's, a, it's, a, it's an individual immersive experience in a, in a 360 virtual world? Yes, yeah. It's, um, it doesn't actually have to be individual. Well, it really is what it, it does what it says on the tin. It is a virtual reality. It's a way of putting you, you're in one reality right now, into the simulation of another reality. And currently that's done with headsets. Right. So strap a screen onto our face, mm -hmm. it tracks your head movements, and it can track other things too, like your body movements. Yeah. And it puts a sphere of another reality around you. That could be a sphere that's created with 360 video, or it could be created with CGI. Because I've I've heard of um, and I've seen um, them being used where people are experiencing flying as a bird across New York. So it is about the whole body, not just the the head, as it were, not just the eyes that are engaging with this world, but actually you're physically feeling other stuff as well. That's one of the really cool things about VR is that even the things that you just it is just a screen structure face, even a Google cardboard. You can't just take your head off and put it in another environment. Yeah. You do, your whole body comes with you. Even if you look down, you just don't see a body. Yeah. It is a full body medium. Yeah. And that's really exciting creatively to think mm. what you can do when you've got mm. this, this, this medium that engages your full self. And that's why when you see people doing virtual reality, even if there are no fancy gloves that record where their hands are in space mm. um, or they're not wearing any trackers, they still move their hands around. They yeah. still move their body. Yeah. And it's quite nice, really, to see how artists, as they're grasping VR and understanding its capabilities, are experimenting with that nature of it being something that is for the whole body. Yeah. I mean, this is what, you know, from a cinema person's point of view, which I am, um, you, you can see the connections going all the way back to early film and experiments with early film. And I've got a photograph of... Uh, somebody looking at a kinetoscope, which was a fixed object with um, you know film going through it, and and the person's looking through um, a viewer, um, but they're going into another world, and it was a very early experimentation with moving image, and of course there was all that experimentation um, going yeah. on because what does this technology of the moving image allow us to do? And yeah. th there was a, a really interesting review of the Naruto piece from Khan, which said. 
um, in Variety, which really was saying th this is demonstrating this new language of v VR. I mean, do do you see it in that way? Is it's is is it's got these creative um, possibilities and a new language, as it were, of yeah. of um, moving image? Yeah. Well, it's more than that. It's it's an art form, but it's an art form all in its own right. And I think mm. that's why so often people make comparison to say 3D TV, 3D cinema, and say, is it going to be like that? Mm. In my eyes, it's completely different because it's a new it's a new form of communication all right. in its own right. Um, yeah. It's a new talking about that relationship to early cinema. There are so many parallels when yeah. you look into it. I mean, one is the way that currently VR now. It's quite experimental, and it's there's, there's a lot of thrill-seeking kind of experiences. Yeah, yeah. Um, like, walk, there, there was a man-on-wire experience where you could walk across the wire. Mm. Um, that feels very like a sort of, I mean, really exciting, but also it's an experiment. You know, yeah. There's lots of these experiments that are trying to push the technology to its limits, mm. push the, the art form to its limits. I'm not sure if that's... To be honest, I'm not sure if in the future that's where it will settle. Yeah. I think it's, you know, this is the equivalent of like those films where you would have the train hurtling. Well, that was the thing in, 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 the, in the early, I mean, the story is that when the Lumiere Brothers film was screened with the yeah, train coming exactly. in, people ran out the road and Edwin S. Porter, when he we did the great train robbery and the, 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 the gunman points the gun at the screen, yeah. the audience and shoots Ooh. the audience. Well, <laughs> yeah. you know, I'm, I'm out. Yeah. And you see so, that kind of thing and, with VR and, now. And, and it's, it, that's what the sort of parallels with VR um, have been. And so um, that people are feeling physically. So the thing, again, going back to the um, the piece in Cannes that, that, that Inaruto's done, was that people who I know had experienced said that they would duck when the, the helicopter yeah. came over. So there is that physical. But, you know, film then evolved into a narrative storytelling exactly. language. Yeah. And, and that's and, what and I is, is, that, is this something that VR's going to evolve? I think it will evolve, and I think it will evolve. There will be a portion of VR that evolves in a narrative way mm. but whether or not that's storytelling i'm yeah. actually skeptical as whether we should use that phrase storytelling yeah. vr seems really really great at creating experiences and yeah. creating emotions stimulating certain sort of ideas or thoughts but but to call it something that you can tell stories in is just a, it's very limiting because actually yeah. when you say storytelling in film, I mean, there are so many different ways in which you can tell uh, uh, stories, you know, that in a way, is it where the, the, the narrative storytelling that we commonly know um, is, is actually a studio-based Hollywood Exactly, thing. it's not the so be-all and end-all. Exactly, so, it's, so it's, it's a kind of one part. And yeah. uh, is it where a, it, VR feels as though it's very much at that frontier of what is possible? Yeah, and, and you could say that we've been bound to storytelling as a culture because we weren't able to get across experience in this way. So mm. we use narrative to conjure yeah. those emotions. But we could, if we, if we sort of look at this differently, we could see this as an opportunity to explore other ways of creating narrative, yeah. creating experience that don't need that sort of neat story up beginning, yeah. middle, end. And also, if you look at cinema from other cultures. Yes. Yeah, well, no, exactly. <laughs> that, I mean, that, completely. That's, yeah, yeah. that's not so different. reliant on neat arcs and yeah. beginning, middle, end. Yeah. So, for, for you, what are the sort of interesting and exciting um, VR pieces that are really? you know, bringing together that sort of creativity and technology? Well, to be honest, that's what I've programmed here. Um, curating VR sessions at Watershed was a real joy because there's certain pieces that I would come back to as examples of 
this is where VR is going as an art form. I mean, VR is going in other places uh, for other things, enterprise, healthcare, for instance, but as an art form, I think that these four pieces that have been curated demonstrate a different strand of VR's potential as art. Yeah. So, um, for example, um, our finale piece is called Natural Reality 2-1. It, it takes you to the wilds of the Norfolk coast. Um, and in a very reflective way, you experience an altering time-lapse. Um, so you see the, the world around you move. Sometimes the clouds are moving very fast. Yeah. Sometimes it's beautifully slow and reflective. And that's accompanied by a soundscape of people talking about their relationship with their devices right. and how that affects their sense of presence in nature. And that's directed by Dorothea Gibbs. That piece, for example, has really, it was one of the first pieces I'd actually ever seen. Mm. <laughs> um, it's really shaped my thinking about the power of presence and also how you can play with the fact that you've got this headset strapped to your face and it may look kind of isolating and strange, mm. but you can use, use that oddity as mm. a tool. Yeah, and, and um, a testament to uh, both the curation and also the uh, audience appetite, um, they, they, these have sold out, <laughs> these yeah. have sold, the sessions have yeah. sold, have sold yeah. out. <laughs> um, but how, if people are interested in finding out more um, about these projects, how, how should they go about? I think the best thing to do if you're interested in VR and trying it out is to get your hands on a Google Cardboard. It's the easiest way to do it and they actually sell them in lots of shops now, like WH Smith, for mm. instance, I noticed at the station, was, was selling a plastic version of a Google Cardboard. And that you can just pop your phone into. The question is, is what apps to download? Mm. What content? Yes, you can do the obvious thing and download a roller coaster experience. Mm. Um, but I'd recommend checking out some of the more arts VR experiences. So, for instance, there's an app called Within. Uh, that has brilliant library of mm. VR pieces that do demonstrate its artistic potential, music videos, documentaries, mm. um, you can get really stuck in. Also, the New York Times uh, mm. have a great Google Cardboard app as well. Um, so that's probably the, the most straightforward way in. Mm. Um, if you want to go one step further, uh, you can actually hire a headset, a, a proper headset, one um, that connects to a PC, and you can hire the PC as well. You, you can hire that for the weekend. Um, pop into Google, um, headset higher mm. uh, it's a hundred quid or so but mm. you know you could have a vr party get people around and um easter rising voice of a rebel my piece which is, has been uh programmed for vr sessions that's available on bbc taster so you can yeah. download that and on bbc taster there's um, some other really interesting yeah. vr experiences too so um you know if you want to go the whole hog hire a headset for the weekend great um and th so the VR sessions um, run at Watershed through June. Um, as I say, they are um, brilliantly sold out, <laughs> so congratulations. Um, but if you, if, if you want to find out more, uh, go onto the Watershed website and search for VR sessions. And as Catherine said, if you uh, look at some of the names of people involved in it, and um, they'll be on social media, etc., and you can find out more about what they're doing. But Catherine, um, thank you very much. Thank you. And also thank you to Tara Jude, um, and to find out more about the melodrama season, again, go to watershed.co.uk uh, and search for all that melodrama allows. That's all for this month.